We read scripture from 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. We'll read the entire passage. We take the first six verses for our text, which we won't reread. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them? that obey not the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take as our text the first six verses of this chapter. The apostle here is emphasizing that this life is a life of suffering for God's children. The apostle writes this to encourage and comfort God's people who find themselves in the midst of these intense sufferings. 
We are suffering for well-doing. We are suffering for Christ's sake. And he contrasts suffering because of one's sin and the consequences of sin with that suffering that is for Christ's sake and because of our faith. At times, that suffering that we endure is intense. And it causes us to cry out to God in prayer. To lift up our eyes in earnest expectation for that day when He will take us into the fullness of the heavenly life that awaits. Where we will reign with Him in glory. That suffering of Christ and that victory that is Christ's is set forth as our encouragement. It's not just our example. This is our salvation. He suffered for sin. And he suffered in our place in order to earn for us the victory. Now Peter knew that suffering. And as he writes to the saints trying to encourage them in the midst of this intense suffering, he does so from his own experience. Peter knew what that suffering was because of persecution. He himself had been imprisoned. And after Herod had killed James, he tried to kill Peter. But God had miraculously and wondrously released him. But Peter knew what it was to be in jail. To realize that one's days were numbered and it could very well be that he was at the end. He also knew suffering that resulted from sin. From the consequences of sins. And Peter had experienced his own willful rebellion and the effects of that in his own life. In his sufferings, he looked to Christ. And he admonishes Christians now to pursue that same spirit. Look to Christ. Look to his holiness and look to his faithfulness. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Now why? Why arm ourselves with that thought? That you may no longer live your life in the flesh according to the lusts of men, but unto God. As those who live out of Christ and arm yourselves with the mind of Christ, you then will turn away from the lusts of the world, the lusts of the flesh, and now pursue the will of God, which alone is good. So, beloved, very practical is the admonition that the Apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, sets before us this evening. As I look back and as you look back on our lives, we see the suffering that we've endured. At times, suffering that was our fault. And with, our, with shame, we look back and realize that what we did, we ought not have done. We see our sin and we see the troubles that resulted from it. We walked in lusts. We partied. We gave ourselves to drink and got drunk. We gave ourselves to the worship of the idol of self and we reaped the fruit of it. We were cruel. We abused our power. But now, the apostle says, look how Christ changed you. Look what Christ did for you. Look at the marvelous wonder of His grace on your behalf. And now, as you realize that your old friends don't really want anything to do with you. They see that you're different. They see that you're changed. They might even speak evil against you, according to verse 4. They might cause troubles for you even. But don't be deterred by their trouble, by their persecution. Keep your focus on Christ. You are alive 
to God and you must live unto him. And so we take that as our theme, living to the Lord. Noting the exhortation here, the basis of it in the suffering of Christ and the blessing that is ours as those who are united to Christ. The apostle begins in verse 2 here that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. The then with which verse 1 begins, for as much then can also be translated therefore. And so this is the conclusion of the apostle now from everything that he's written in the previous chapters concerning the calling of God's children as pilgrims and strangers to suffer in the midst of this world and to endure that suffering for well-doing. You are in communion with Christ and with his suffering, he says. And so there are practical implications now for your life as God's children. As those who are united to Christ, this is going to be your experience. Christ suffered for well-doing. And it's recorded for us in the scriptures. But he did not allow that suffering to deter him from his goal and from his ambition to follow the will of his heavenly Father. His goal was to save his church and to give God glory. And he did not allow the suffering and the opposition he faced to deter him from that life of obedience toward his Father. He loved God, and he gave his life for the sake of the will of his heavenly Father, even when that meant for him tremendous opposition and death. When we arm ourselves, beloved, with the same mind as Christ, we are living in the assurance that I belong to Christ, and that the glory that was his after his suffering is mine as well. As one who's united to Christ, I am found in Him and belonging to Him. Not only was I crucified with Him, but I was raised with Him. Not only will I suffer with Him, but I will also be glorified with Him. Now there's a twofold exhortation here that involves both negative and positive admonitions. First of all, the negative. Don't live the rest of your time in the flesh according to the lusts of men. Time in the flesh simply refers to the days and the years of our life here below. In this pilgrimage that stretches out down the path that leads us to heavenly glory. The time in the flesh is a reference to the days on earth that include all the activities of our soul, our mind, our body. All our thinking, all our willing, all of our doing. And so the apostle is saying here, Don't live the rest of those days according to the lusts of the flesh. Now this exhortation is given with this as the occasion. Your previous days have been according to the flesh to a large degree. Your previous days have not been in accordance with the will of God and the life of Jesus Christ. Now, it may have been previous to our conversion. It may be in the foolishness and the sinfulness of youth. And he gives then a list of the sins that we are to turn away from when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. That list is not intended to be exhaustive, but what it is intended to do is this, to humble us, to prick us. 
to cause us to see our unworthiness and our need for God's grace. We have not in the past walked with Christ. We walked according to our own will. We pursued our own lusts, our own pleasures. The way of God was not in our thoughts. We were enslaved to our own lusts. We were enslaved to our own desires. And we spent days, months, and years trying to find joy and happiness in the pursuit of our own activities. Calling to remembrance those earlier days, calling to remembrance those earlier activities, has a profound sense of removing pride and deepening our sense of gratitude and thankfulness toward God. As Christians, we often must look to the rock from whence we have been hewn, at the hole of the pit out of which we were dug. That's Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look to Abraham your father, unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. Look at what God has done for you. Look at Abraham. And what's the significance of Abraham and Sarah? God preserved His covenant through them. And not because of anything of them. It was all of grace. They couldn't have a child. And they didn't until God miraculously gave them Isaac in their old age. Demonstrating His faithfulness to His covenant. God is faithful. And so the Apostle now says to us, as God's children... Now you know better. You know better. You are in Christ. You are new creatures in Christ. The old things are passed away. And God has renewed you by a wonder of His grace. Don't live according to the lusts of the flesh. Crucify those lusts and those desires. Don't rely on alcohol to get you through the day and to make your day manageable. Don't trust in the things of this world, the parties and the sex outside of marriage to give you joy and to give you happiness. There's not joy. There's not happiness found in those things. Where you were tempted to follow after the ways of sin and continue in those sins, turn from them. Fight those desires. Fight those temptations. Get out of the situations where temptation ruled and where you were tempted to compromise. Get help. Get accountability where necessary so that you can be kept faithful. Don't continue to labor to get rich, to labor for the things of this earth. Resist steadfastly the way of sin, the way that leads to death. Those who are born of the flesh are in bondage to the flesh. They serve self, and they worship self, and they seek self. And the apostle says, such were you. But now you are Christ's. And now when you see others who are in that situation, don't be inclined to run with them and to walk with them. Pray for them. Pray that God will rescue them out of their bondage. And seek to be a witness. You are born of the Spirit. You are free in Jesus Christ. And you have been rescued from that bondage of self and brought into the liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live now according to the will of God. And beloved, that's the positive here. Live according to the will of God. As you arm yourself with that 
spirit, that mind of Christ, here's how you are to walk. Even as Christ set his mind on pursuing the will of his heavenly Father. And though that required of him tremendous opposition, hatred, anger, and wrath by the authorities and those around him, he single-heartedly pursued it for your salvation. And now as you arm yourselves with that mind, seek the will of God. So basic, beloved. We know the will of God. We hear it read every Sunday. And yet, how urgent and how necessary this admonition. To the question, may I do this? Ought I do that? The answer always is, what does God's Word say? What does the Bible teach? The Bible is the authoritative guide for your life and mine. And not only do we insist that the Bible is the infallible Word of God that is without error, but we insist that word is the will of our Heavenly Father for us. And we need to submit to it. And we need to pursue it. And so we teach our children from early on, thy will be done. Not your will, God's will. Thy will be done in your life. And we teach them what that means by our example. We try to emulate that by the decisions that we make in our lives. And we try to show them This is what it means to pursue God's will. This is what it means to renounce your own will and to do what God wants you to do. And we teach them, pursuing God's will is not going to be easy. It's hard. It's going to involve suffering. It requires of you that you need to renounce your own will. You need to put aside what you want to do in order to do what God wants you to do. It's hard on our emotions. It's hard on our flesh. And it's impossible of ourselves. And we teach them no amount of excuses, no amount of justifications, no amount of emotions can sway us from God's revealed will. This is what God says. This is what God would have us to do. And as much as we think or we feel, it doesn't matter. You are not your own. You belong to your Heavenly Father. And you are called now to live unto Him. Live unto God. Live unto the Lord. Reject those lusts, those sins, and pursue now the will of your Heavenly Father. There's a persevering that's spoken of here. God's children need to persevere in the confidence of God's preserving grace. God is with me, and God's grace preserves me and gives me strength to persevere now in that way which is in accordance with God's will. Do you say that you're Christ's? You say that you belong to Christ. You confess Christ as your Lord. Here's how you live it. You don't continue in those lusts. You don't continue in those excesses. You don't continue in that partying and those sinful idolatries. You walk now in accordance with the will of your Heavenly Father. They that are Christ's will show it. And they will show it by crucifying the flesh with the affection and the lust. You who are Christ will show it by living in a manner that reflects. You are not ruled by a love for pleasure and a love for money and a love for fame and honor. What rules you is Christ and the pursuit of His will. You who are Christ's share in His suffering. You live for Him. You seek His will. Even when you know that the pursuit of His will is going to cost you. 
It's going to cost you friends. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you a job, perhaps. But you follow Jesus because this is the wonder that God has worked in your heart. Remember the words of Jesus. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we do that will of our Father because of the faith that he works within us, because of the wonder of his work of grace. Those who do the will of God reveal they're united to Christ. They're not sinless. They're sinners. But they repent from their sin. They fight that sin. They flee that sin. And they seek in every area of their life to conform to the will of their Heavenly Father. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We read in verse 1. Now that word mind there is a word that could be translated thought. Arm yourselves with these same thoughts. What is the thought that the apostle here is talking about? It's contained in the verses that follow. The thought is this. He that hath suffered in the flesh has ceased or made rest from sin. Keep that thought within your mind. And the reference, first of all, is to Jesus. Jesus suffered in the flesh. He suffered for sin. And he suffered in such a way that that sin was put to death in the flesh. Now that raises questions. How can it be said of Jesus that he ceased from sin when he never sinned ever in the first place? The word ceased here means rest. Jesus was relieved of the bondage of sin and death through his suffering. He suffered in our stead. He suffered for us. And therefore, when he suffered, we were found in him. And when he died, we died in him. The apostle then includes not just Christ, but Christ and all those who are found in him in this phrase. He hath died for sin. He that hath died for sin is free from sin. That doesn't mean that we have no sin anymore. We know that the scriptures are abundantly clear in our own experience as such. He that saith he has no sin or says that he is sinless is a liar. The truth is not in him. 1 John 1. But the idea is this. Though we still sin, we hate it. And we walk as those who are the saints of God. Sin no longer holds us in bondage as previously it did. And here's the difference. Now, by God's grace, we can say no to sin. We can resist temptation. Previously, we couldn't. We were bound to that sin. We loved that sin. We could not say no to it. But now, as those who are in Christ, who yet are affected by sin, you now have the power to say no to sin. Christ's rest from sin is that he took the full punishment of sin and paid the debt. He can no longer suffer. He can no longer die for sin. It's accomplished. He already did it. He's been delivered from that bondage. And he died for sin once. And with that, all those found in him also have similarly been rescued. He fulfilled the whole demand of the law. So that when Christ suffered and when he died, he did so for his saints in our place. And Christians here are identified with Christ. He overcame for me. He overcame for you. 
And he took the full punishment of that sin for me and for you. And he did it in a godly manner. He did it in an upright way. He did it without sin. He was taunted. He was constantly harassed. But he was patient over against the taunts of the wicked. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He was willing to suffer in silence and return insult. Not for insult, but with love. He was committed to the final outcome of his suffering and he committed that to God. Beloved, in the face of temptation, in the face of sin, arm yourselves with this mind of Christ. The thought, I am united to Christ and I have the victory in Him. That's the thought that strengthens us in the face of temptation. Temptation does not rule me. Sin does not control my life. Christ does. He is my Lord and Savior. And I belong to Him. And He's overcome the powers of sin and death on my behalf. The saving power of Christ is such that not only has He paid for my sin, by His Spirit now, He preserves me in the battle. Sin does not rule over me. Christ rules me. And evidence of that is found in this. Repentance. God works the marvelous wonder of repentance when I sin. I sorrow over my sin. I flee from that sin. And I seek God and I seek His will. And through my sin, God teaches me all the more to see how weak I am so that I lean not on my own strength, but on Christ and the power of His Spirit. God not only directs this admonition to His children, but God works the grace by which we flee sin and live unto Him. And that's the marvelous nature of the admonitions of God's Word as they come to God's elect. God only comes to us and says, live unto God. But then He works His Spirit in our hearts by which He works in us that desire. We desire to live unto God. We want to pursue His will. Now, the admonition to arm yourselves suggests a battle. And we understand very really that battle. Though God sounds this admonition to our hearts and works within us that desire to pursue His will, there's a battle. There are those who intimidate us. Those are those who oppose us. And sometimes they just keep on nagging on us. They just keep on opposing us. We might keep silent for a time. But then finally, we're tempted to respond in anger. Tempted to fight back in a sinful manner. Our endurance in suffering and our willingness to suffer are weapons. Now, strange weapons, but they're weapons that keep us focused on Christ so that we see how weak we are. And we realize our need for the cross. And we realize our need for His Spirit. The basis of this admonition is not live unto God because you're so strong and because you're so capable. The basis of this admonition is live unto God because of Christ and because of His transforming work in your life and on your behalf. If the admonition was our works, all would be in vain. But this admonition is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. 
and the power of His Spirit as it lives within your heart. He who has begun a good work within you will bring it to its completion. Arm yourselves with that spirit, that mind of Jesus Christ. Now the basis of it then is Christ and His suffering. And that comes out in verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. We noted last time that the suffering that Jesus endured had especially three qualities. First of all, it was penal. It was suffering for sin. Jesus suffered for many things, but at heart, His suffering was for our sins. He suffered as the one who took the punishment of our sin upon Him. And He was made sin and made a curse in our place. And so His suffering was for sin, for my sin and for your sin. Secondly, His suffering was vicarious. It was substitutionary. He suffered for sin as one who knew no sin in the place of those who were sinners. His sheep, those whom the Father had given him. And so he didn't suffer for his own sins. He had none. But he was suffering the just for the unjust. His suffering for sin, his suffering which was substitutionary, and finally his suffering was expiatory. It was effective. It accomplished the purpose That God had ordained. It made an end of sin by paying the debt in full. He took away the sin, the punishment of that sin, death and hell, through his own sacrifice and his own perfect obedience. The goal of his suffering was to bring guilty men into favor with God. And Christ took then depraved, miserable men and women, those who by nature were given to the grossest of sins, and he brought them into freedom, into the presence of Almighty God, into the enjoyment of the fellowship and the covenant of God, making them wise, blessed, and good forever. Now, while these sufferings ended in the death of Jesus Christ, they obtained for Christ the spiritual power that He proclaims in the Gospel. He proclaims liberty to those who are imprisoned to guilt and shame of sin. He gives holiness to those who are in bondage to their own depravity. And that's the powerful message of the gospel. Jesus Christ comes to us and proclaims liberty, saying, I suffered for sin. I suffered in your place. I took upon myself the full punishment of what you deserved. And the fruit of that, the result is, I now strengthen you by my Spirit. And you now, will pursue that which is holy and good. You will walk in accordance with God's will and God's commandments. Such is the wonder and the power of the work of Jesus Christ. The admonition then, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ and don't live the rest of your time according to the lust of the flesh, but to the will of God. And do so on this basis. This is what Christ has done for you. And this is who you are as one united and joined to Christ. You now live not unto yourself, but you live unto Christ and by the power of His Spirit. For this cause, verse 6 says, was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. Now there's a lot of questions about that statement, but the best way to understand it is it's talking about you and me. We were dead. And the gospel came to us. Why? 
so that it might work this wonder of grace, might direct us to Christ and strengthen us to live unto God. The gospel is preached when we were living and by the power of that gospel, we were saved. God's people who have died heard the gospel. And so the reference here is to God's people who were alive but now have died. But similar to us, heard that gospel and it transformed their lives. The result of their life was that they lived now in a manner that occasioned persecution, hatred, opposition from the world, and even their death. And that especially is what the apostles getting at here. You know people who were killed because of their faith. God is the one that caused Christ to suffer and die so that the gospel could go forth in order that those individuals might know the joy and hope of their salvation. That while the world sentenced them to death, and while they took the judgment of men that came in every form of opposition, they were justified by God. God saved and delivered them. And God used the judgment of men to bring them into the fullness of the blessedness of their life as his children with him. The world killed them, but God exalted them. And God gave them eternal life. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, in order that they might know hope and that they might have been given to know this joy and this wonder. And beloved, now that same gospel comes to saints who are living, that they might be encouraged in their own lives. Just as the gospel has saved those who have gone before you, so now it's the power of God for your salvation. And just as the saints who went before you suffered, many were killed because of their confession of Christ, so as you go forward, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be opposition. As Christ gets closer to his return, there will be death. Peter is writing not only to the saints during this time, but he's writing to you and to me that we hear this message. In your suffering, you're in good company. Not only are you in company with Christ, you're also in company with those saints who have gone before you. Your suffering is great. He's not minimizing the horror and the difficulty of their suffering. Your suffering is great. It's intense. Some of you are going to die because of the gospel. But that's the same that Christ endured and the same that the saints who have gone before you have experienced. And the reward is great. You will also have the reward as they did. As wonderful as they experienced, so that reward is yours. And so the apostles' point is this. The devil did not have the victory. Though the devil thought he was slaying Christ and slaying the saints... Though the devil persecutes the church and believes that in that way he can have the victory, the victory is not to the devil. The victory is in Christ. And look to Christ and the wonder of his grace and the power of his sacrifice and suffering by which you have been given the victory. The gospel is our hope and our comfort. And that gospel has come to us. And God has worked faith by which we lay hold on that gospel. And we now live unto Christ. Beloved, that's the way of blessedness. The blessing is set forth. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, 
and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Verses 3 through 5. But nature we still would, and we still do too often, pursue the will of the Gentiles. The way that leads to guilt and shame, bondage, and ultimately death without repentance. The will of the Gentiles is the purpose, the plans, the goals of the wicked. They use creation, they use all of the gifts of men to pursue that will. The way of sin is the way of judgment. Jehovah God, as the righteous judge, will punish all those who walk unrepentantly in sin. All men will give an account before God. And that's set forth here powerfully. Who shall give account to him who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. They think they can run in such excesses without having to face the judge. They will face the judge of heaven and earth. And they will face the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's no way to escape the judgment of Almighty God. God is the righteous God will punish everyone who continues unrepentantly in sin. And all men will give an account before that judge. The wicked will be judged knowing that they knew the will of God and they refused it. They knew that there was a God. They knew that God was to be worshipped and served. And they pursued their own will. And they will need to give an account. And greater than any of their other sins, given the context of this epistle, is their persecution of the righteous. They opposed God's children. They slandered God's people. And for that, they will have to give an account to the judge. How did you treat the people of God? How did you act toward those who belonged to Christ and who were Christ's? And the picture here is that Jesus Christ, as judge, is eager to vindicate the cause of his people. And that's what God's people need to know in their suffering. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not our calling to vindicate. It's not our calling to get justice. Christ will do so as the judge of the living and of the dead. And he comes quickly in order to accomplish that vindication for which his saints look. What that means too for us is that there's no suffering unnecessary. As difficult as the suffering that Christ's church endures, Christ will not return until the fullness of that cup of suffering is filled. Every aspect, every bit of it having a purpose in God's sovereign counsel and plan. But what happens with regard to our lives as we live among the world and the wicked? Those who walk in such sins, they want us to join them in it. And they pester us. They want us to follow them. They mock us when we don't. And they think it's strange, as the apostle says, that we don't run with them to the same excess of riot. The first five sins are referring to sinful pleasures, desires of the flesh. Abominable idolatries there really sums up all five of them. Idolatry is woven into all of the life of unbelief and wickedness. Idolatry that centers around worship of me and worship of my will. And that was the case with regard to the pagans. Idolatry moved them to fornication, indulgent in sexual lusts, eating meat and drink that was offered to idols, giving themselves to excesses, 
giving themselves to sexual sins, to lusts, and to all of the gross sins. Abominable idolatries. Turn away from them. Refrain from them. And again, those who are wicked want us to walk in them. And when we don't, our life and our walk is an implied condemnation on their way of life. And they don't like that. They want us to join them. But the blessing, beloved, is this. God has rescued us from the bondage of the will of the flesh. He's rescued us from that idolatry of self. And now he gives us to know Christ and the victory that is ours in him. And as those who are Christ, we are filled with a desire for spiritual things. We seek the things that are spiritual. Rather than serving idols and pursuing pleasures, we go to church. We sit with our families. We sing God's songs. We pray. We read the Bible. We give ourselves to the searching of God's word. We're attentive to the preaching. And God works in us such that our daily lives are radically different. We begin the day in prayer. We begin the day in the Word of God. We go about our walk and our conduct seeking to maintain a life that is a witness to God and a testimony to His glory. We pursue His will. Not mammon, not lust, not pleasures. We fall. We cry out to God for repentance and we're strengthened in our resolve to do that which is right and pleasing in His sight. God working in us, repentance, daily conversion, and that walk thankful obedience. And this change of life and walk causes the wicked to be shocked. They view it as strange. Why would you live that way? Why would you pursue those things? Why would you go to church twice? Why would you turn your back on all these fun things that you did in the past? And they view it as strange. They're shocked. They can't understand why you'd want to do these things. And they might even say, oh, you're just doing that in order to earn something, in order to earn favor. But beloved, this is the blessing, the wonder of regeneration. This is the work of God by which he incorporates his children into the joy of their salvation. And God is the one who's worked a wonder. And that's our testimony. That's our witness to them. This is God's work. God has made me a new creature in Christ. And my desire now is to live unto Him and to walk with Him and to pursue His will to all eternity. We view it as blessed. Blessed beyond measure. God is the answer for the difference. And we look back and we do so not only with shame, but we do so also with a sense of fear. I could have been that one. I might have continued in that way. I might not have been rescued out of that way of sin and unbelief. And thanks be to God for the victory that is mine in Christ. And I pray for those who remain in that bondage. And rather than walking with them and rather than getting as close to them as I can without them affecting me, I realize I need to live unto God and I need to pursue His will. But then there's another judgment that also is spoken of here in verse 6 that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. The blessing, not only of that union with God and the peace that is ours in it, but the blessedness of knowing and believing that 
while men judge us, our life is not lived before men. We live before God by His Spirit. This is a different judgment than that which was spoken of in verse 5. That was the judgment of the wicked as they rose up to kill the saints and as God would vindicate His people and His church. Here we have the judgment of God on His elect children. The wicked world has no blessing for faithfulness and obedience. They seek to destroy. They seek to kill the saints and condemn them. They speak evil. They try to make their life miserable as they've done throughout all of history. They judge. They kill. They oppose. But God is faithful. And God justifies. And God gives His Spirit. And He gives eternal life. God says, I declare you righteous. I look upon you as my child, precious in my sight. He sounds forth through the preaching of the gospel the testimony of Christ and works faith and joy in our hearts so that we live according to God in the Spirit. He preserves and He keeps His own now and to all eternity, publicly vindicating them on that day of judgment. That day when the wicked will be judged and cast into everlasting darkness, His children will be cast into everlasting joy in heaven on the basis of Christ and the work that he has performed on their behalf. Beloved, we rejoice in the wonder by which God has rescued us from the bondage of sin. We remain earthly, still tempted by the flesh, suffering the consequences of that sin, the effects of that sin and death on our bodies. Wicked men rise up in judgment. Life is not going to get easier in the midst of this world for those who belong to Christ. But we live unto him. And as the apostle stated in verses 24 and 25 in chapter 2, we look to Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, humbled we are to the dust as we see thy hand in our lives and as we see the wonder of thy mercy and thy goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. Give us to know the blessedness of that union with Christ. Cause us to live and to walk, not according to the flesh, but by thy Spirit. And work in us repentance and true sorrow for sin and cause that we might delight in thee and lay hold on Christ as the shepherd, the bishop of our soul. Amen.